0: Well, we're going to plunge into a review of the book of Leviticus. Now, here's a book that would seem really of interest just to uh, religious antiquarians. Most, of, most people regard this with either indifference or in some cases doubt. And it certainly seems distant from our lives. It hardly seems relevant to the lives that you and I uh, face day to day. So it may come as a surprise to you. To discover that there are a number of biblical experts who regard the book of Leviticus as the most important book of the Bible. Sam Kellogg, Dr. Albert Dudley, and of all people, J. Vernon McGee. In fact, J. Vernon McGee says, quote, if it were possible to get the message of this book into the hearts of the people who are trying to be religious, all cults and isms would end. Close quote. Interesting remark. So let me open by asking this question, what is the most important thing in the world? What is the most important thing in the world? And I'm going to suggest that the answer to that question is holiness. Is holiness. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said it, he, he that sees the beauty of holiness or true moral good sees the greatest and most important thing in the world. Let's contrast holiness with happiness. All of us, whether we admit it or not, are really seeking happiness. But see, true happiness begins with holiness. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, "Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord." Matthew five six says, "Blessed are they who which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled." And Charles Spurgeon made a rather dramatic statement. If I had my choice of all the blessings I can conceive of, I would choose perfect conformity to the Lord Jesus, or in one word, holiness. That's quite a statement. I don't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you would make that choice? Had a choice of anything? Would that be your choice? That was Spurgeon's choice, and he characterized it by the way he lived. See, we want Jesus to solve our problems and carry our burdens, but we don't want him to control our lives or change our character or arrange our priorities. And that's the problem. Eight times God has said to His people, Be holy, for I am holy. And that's the key verse, verses in in, in the the book of Leviticus, chapter 11 incidentally. Somebody came up to me tonight and is very anxious to get to chapter 11, because that was a bar mitzvah chapter for that particular person. And, uh, it, you know, it's a dietary area. We'll get into that when we do course, but it's interesting that that emphasis is there. It's interesting that the same issue is applied to the New Testament church. In First Peter 1, verse 15, 16, it says, But as he which hath called us, excuse me, he that has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. And those, that old English term really means your total conduct, total behavior. Not conversation today means it's much more narrow, but in those days it was a much broader term. It it, 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 Paraphrasing slightly, but as he, he that hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of your behavior. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. He, he quotes that very passage from Leviticus. Holiness is not a luxury. It's an essential, a necessity. And it's not limited to the Jews in ancient Israel. Leviticus will instruct us as New Testament Christians how to appreciate holiness and to appropriate it into our everyday life. We're going to get that from this book, strange as it may seem. The most frequent words, of course, are predictable. Holy is used 94 times in 77 verses. And uncleanness is used 129 times in 96 verses. The book is going to have five basic themes that it's going to address. And the first of these themes deals with a holy God. What do we mean by a holy God? What is holiness? It's the primary emphasis in the Bible. The word occurs 87 times in this book. Leviticus twenty twenty-six 26 says, And ye shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and have severed you from all other people, that you should be mine. The word holy means set aside, set aside for him. The Hebrew word for holy in Leviticus is kodesh. It means that which is set apart and marked off, that which is different, separateness, apartness, assuredness. So that's really what it means. Are you really set apart for God? All of us have come down the sawdust trail, made a decision for Christ. That's great. One of the things that's disturbing about our culture is that we tend to celebrate that as some kind of big victory. And indeed it is. It's it's by the act of the Holy Spirit that we can even do that. And yet... That's not a climax. It's a beginning. I'll often ask an audience, "How many of you are saved?" A bunch of hands go up. He says, "What have you done with it?" You see, that's just the beginning. Our problem is not life after death. Our problem is life after birth, and that's what this book is going to focus on for us. The Sabbath was holy because God set it apart. The priests were holy because they were set apart to minister the Lord. Their garments were holy because they could not be duplicated for common use. The tithe was holy. You can go through a whole list of things of this kind. Anything that God said was to be treated differently from the common things of life was something that was holy, that was Kodesh. Was... Now the English word holy comes from the old English word halig, which means to be whole or be healthy. So the word, our, ho- our English word holy comes from f- being complete, being healthy. Our related word sanctify comes from the Latin, Sanctus, which means consecrated, sacred, or blameless, it's probably closer uh, to, the, to the, the, the biblical intent than the word than the original word of the word "holy" in English. Now, how did a holy God reveal Himself and His holiness? How does a God that's holy reveal Himself and instruct people about His holiness? See the religions in Canaan that uh, were contemporaneous with the Israelis. Um, and other religions as well, were notoriously immoral. They involved all kinds of gross acts, temple prostitution and the like, idols and, and uh, all that. The religions later of Greece and Rome were not much better. They were just echoes of those original. In fact, all religions tra- tr- actually can be traced back to Babylon, but that's another study. You never call any of the heathen deities Holy. Yet the Holy One of Israel is one of the most often repeated names for Jehovah or Yahweh or however you want to say it in the Scripture, over 30 times in Isaiah alone. Now, God gave them a holy law that contained both promises and penalties. And of course, the Ten Commandments are the essence of that. It's not limited to that, but they're the essence of that, Exodus chapter 20. And it taught them right from wrong. It defined things clean and unclean. And the penalties of disobedience. You know, it's interesting that our culture has deemed that truth is relative. That is not only illogical, it is also undermining the the whole uh, uh, our whole culture. I, uh, again, another thing I, uh, uh, you probably have seen in the news. There was another attempt that paralleled the Columbine High School incident. They fortunately found out about it in time and nailed it. But here was a whole scheme of a group to do the same insanity. Ending in their own suicide. You, you, you wonder, what's going on? And yet, why should we be surprised? Because we have, we have undermined the very pinnings of our culture. What is true? There, you, the early idea is you want to learn what's right from wrong. We say there is no right from wrong. Well, that's, that is probably the ultimate lie against God. Because God writes the rules, and He's made it very clear what's right and wrong. So in both declarations but also demonstrations, Jehovah made it clear to the people of Israel that He is a holy God, righteous in all His works and just in all His judgments. You see, the, the main thing that's going to come across as we get into the details is that the requirements for holiness is uncompromising by its own definition. If you're to be defect-free, you can't have any defects. Near misses don't count. you always say near misses only count in, what, uh, grenades and horseshoes, huh? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, period, no exceptions. And Ezekiel says essentially the same thing. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You know, it's interesting. It startled me to realize that Socrates, this highly venerated Greek thinker of 500 B.C., uh, contemporaneous with Ezekiel and the Old Testament prophets, even uh, Socrates recognized the problem. He said, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I don't see how. That's a profound statement. He recognized that a holy God can't just wink at sin. He's not holy anymore. He's compromising. If you're going to be holy, you can't be compromising. There's a basic paradox here. Well, let's look at it first from the predicament of man. And I I, I was really intrigued that I decided to quote it from Joseph Seitz, one of the commentaries that uh, is in the bibliography for the study, one of about a dozen. But is Joseph A. Seitz, he wrote in 1850 before the Civil War, Uh, did an excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, also he has an excellent commentary on the book of Leviticus. In fact, he calls it the gospel in Leviticus. But he he describes the predicament of man, as I would say it, uh, as follows. In his fallen, degenerate condition, man is lost. Darkness, which he cannot dissipate, is all around him. Stains of guilt, which he cannot wash out, are upon him. The curse of condemnation stands written against him, beyond his power to expunge it or check it off. A foul disease is fretting through all his nature, against which there is no earthly antidote or remedy. Death and decay are on him and cling to him as part of himself, and he cannot cut loose from them. Eternity itself, as far as his own strength goes, can only bring him sorrow and despair. There's another recognition here, by the way, just to intrude a comment, is that we're all eternal, whether we like it or not. We're software, not hardware. Software has no mass. Mass has no time. We are eternal whether we like it or not. That's the problem. Where are we going to spend it? But uh, the science goes on. He says, But God came to us in this desperate estate and proffers through Christ an eternal deliverance. For darkness, He proposes to give us light. For sin, He holds out the means of an effectual cleansing. For condemnation, He tenders to us a present and full reprieve. For all our ailments, He engages to work for us an abiding cure. And for our corruption and death, He offers us glory and immortality. In one word, he proposes to save us. You know, we use that term, you know, we use that term so commonly, it gets to be almost a trite platitude. Are you saved? You know, saved from what? Well, you better understand what you say, your need for it. It's, it's nice restoration, that is complete restoration, is now proclaimed from the heavens as a portion of those who will pre- receive it through Jesus Christ. It is a blessed proclamation. It is indeed good news. Glad tidings of great joy. And this proclamation is the gospel. Well, that's the predicament of man. Let's look at it from God's side, the predicament, what I call the predicament of God. God hates sin. It's intrinsic in His nature because He's a holy God. He hates sin. He can't tolerate sin. And yet, He loves sinners. So what does He do? Because He loves sinners and He wants to forgive them, He has provided a substitute to die in the sinner's place. The whole sacrificial system that we're going to get into here that was declared to Israel is that a a substitutionary death would be required to die in the sinner's place. And all this, of course, is prefiguring a promised Savior who would lay down His life for the sins of the world. These sacrifices that we're going to study were foreshadowings. No one was saved by the blood of bulls and goats except in the sense that it, it foreshadows and links one to the efficacy of Christ at the cross. See, the death of Christ was not a tragedy. It was an achievement. He didn't just die. He fulfilled myriads of precise specifications detailed in the Scriptures. The entire sacrificial system pointed toward this most significant event in the universe. And the very definition of the gospel is built on on these specifications. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, it defines the God. We use that term so commonly, the gospel is the gospel that. What is it? It's amazing. Once you realize what the gospel is, to discover how few pulpits of popular churches really preach it. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He didn't just die, he didn't just disappear. He, and he didn't just die, he died according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Among them, Leviticus. He fulfilled all kinds of things that we'll get into. And that he was buried, and then he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. He didn't just happen to be a miracle. No, it was according to the Scriptures. This was the plan. A plan agreed between the father and son before the foundation of the world. Adam was not a surprise. God had anticipated that Adam would blow it. And it would take nothing less than the death of his son to extricate Adam and his descendants from the predicament they got themselves into. Science can tell of God. It can see its fingerprints throughout the creation. It can trace its footsteps everywhere. But science cannot tell us of any remedy for sin. It cannot tell us about any savior for the soul. And it can't tell us or give us any peace for the guilty. It's more important for you and I to understand the laws of grace than the laws of nature. It's interesting. God has only devoted a couple of chapters to the one and it's devoted over 500 to the other. Well, that's the first of the major themes that we'll encounter in Leviticus, and we'll see that unfold as we go. The second one is the holy priesthood. Now, you realize, I think, the Jewish uh, priesthood belonged only to the tribe of Levi, the third son of Jacob and Leah. And uh, Levi was the father of Gershom, Kohath, and Merari, the three families of the Levites. Kohath's son, Amram, was the father of Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. And, of course, it's the descendants of Aaron that are priests. You can't be a priest unless you have Levi genes. We always have to work that in just to get the tired pun out here. See, so all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. The non-priest Levites were assistants of various kinds to the priesthood, or at least that's the concept. And uh, so uh, they were assigned all kinds of different jobs. They were sub- the, All Levites, by the way, were substitutes for the firstborn males of Israel. All of whom were dedicated to the Lord. If you go back in Exodus thirteen and Numbers three, you'll find that the firstborn of anything was the Lord's, and uh, the Levites in a, were concept, in one conceptualization, uh, excuse me, conceptualization, were substitutes uh, for the firstborn males of all Israel. David divided the Levites into twenty-four courses, as they're called, twenty-four partitioned in twenty-four groups. And each of these then would officiate at certain times when their turn came. And, because there were thousands of them, obviously. And it's incidentally, it's a key to understanding this, uh, to understand the book of Revelation when you get to the 24 elders. Because they are, they define themselves as kings and priests and they're the redeemed. So it's very important to understand that. Now, the title of the book, Leviticus, as we have it, derives from Levi, meaning pertaining to the Levites. And, uh, even though the Levites are only mentioned once in the book. Now, the, pre- the, the priests had not only to come from the tribe of Levi, they had to be free of any physical defect, and they could not marry women whom, whom God disapproved. And they're subject to all kinds of laws of bathing, of garments, and diets, and details that did not apply to the common people. In that way, they were set apart, and therefore holy to the Lord. The Levites, in general, were in charge of the sanctuary... And during the wilderness wanderings, they arranged for its transport and so forth and its furnishings from place to place. They were responsible to guard the sanctuary, to teach the people the law, and to lead the worshipers in praising God. Here's what's disturbing. As you look through the rules that they <laughs> had to comply with, almost all of them, if they were violated, were subject to the penalty of death. See, only a holy priesthood could approach God's altar and be acceptable to serve God. If they weren't dressed properly, they were subject to death. That's what Ezekiel 28. Excuse me, Exodus 28. If they didn't wash properly, if they tried to serve while unclean, if they were careless with the tabernacle furnishings, any of these things, they were they were in danger of death. Now, incidentally, of course, to carry the analogy so we know where we're headed here, Jesus is, of course, our high priest. But every true believer in Jesus Christ is a priest of God with the privilege of offering spiritual sacrifice through Jesus Christ. That's in First Peter 2. He deals with that. In the Old Testament... The people had a priesthood. In the New Testament, the people are the priesthood. Big difference. Through Christ, we've been washed. Through Christ, we've been clothed in His righteousness, and we've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and we are given access to His presence. All those are specifically addressed in the New Testament epistles. Well, a third topic that's going to develop as we go forward here is a holy people. The whole concept of a holy people. And uh, that, was that, that was God's concept in calling Israel out, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation as in Exodus 19, the chapter before the Ten Commandments. That was his pr- purpose in it. Everything was either holy, that is set apart for God's exclusive use, or it was common. Everything is either holy or common, one or the other. It can't be both. It's either set aside for God's exclusive use, or it's common. Now, common things were divided into two categories. Clean, that means you could use them or unclean, you are forbidden to use them. Those are Levitical definitions. Now, let me ask you an interesting question. How many of each animal did Noah take in the ark? We're leaving Leviticus for a moment, flashing all the way back before Exodus, back to Genesis, back to Genesis 6. How many of each animal did Noah take in the ark? The the, the general answer is two. No. Two of the unclean, seven of the clean presumably so they had some for sacrifice now the question that never occurs to anybody is how did noah know what was clean and unclean those aren't intrinsic characteristics of those animals they're levitical definitions the point i'm trying to suggest here is these ideas these concepts were installed long before israel long before abraham back in eden we'll link that as we go we're going to link what we leviticus from eden and then into the New Testament. And that will, that will give it a perspective that is missing if you, you fail to make that connection. And by the way, when Israel started to live like the pagans, they robbed God of His glory, and He had to chasten them. Now the frailties of our own genetic defects, and what have you, are provided for if we too comply for His provisions for those inadequacies. Well, a fourth theme that we're going to deal of the five is the Holy Land, the whole concept of a Holy Land. God wants His holy people to live in a holy land. And He lays out uh, uh, the word land from Leviticus 18 to 27. The word land is used 68 times. What are the sins that defile the land and invite divine judgment? We need to understand that. The sins include immorality. We'll deal with that in chapter 18. It deals with idolatry. And yes, we are idolaters. Madison Avenue makes sure of that. All of us have things that tend to preempt what we should be doing for the living God. All coveting is to idolatry. We'll deal with that in chapter 19. Capital crimes. Chapter 20. The concept of imprisonment was not in Israel. This country never had prisons. They punished the guilty and if it was death penalty they ended it well they didn't you know restore the guy they're more concerned with the land and the people capital crimes we'll deal with that in chapter 20 blasphemy in chapter 23 and refusing to give the land its rest even though man has rest one day in seven the land had ordained rest one year in seven and when they failed to keep that for almost five centuries god says you owe me 70 and that's why they went into Babylon captivity specifically to the day for 70 years. God means what he says and says what he means. You know, the more you understand God, the more you realize he means what he says he take, and, and, and says what he means and you take him seriously. I don't like to say take him literally because then everybody, well, figures of speech. No, there's lots of figures of speech. But still he articulates it very clearly and He makes, there's no ambiguity. Mark Twain said it so well. He says, it's it's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. (laughs) So when the people of Israel committed these sins, uh, God chose to chase them by allowing Babylon to destroy Jerusalem take the people captive. Now, the nations of the world do not have the same covenant relationship that God had with Israel, not even the United States. But we're still responsible to obey his moral law and to use his gifts wisely. Amos deals with that in the first couple of chapters of Amos. Now, with our unique heritage, I believe you and I will be held accountable before the throne of God for our stewardship of this heritage that has come to us at such a high price, because it is so uniquely committed to Him. Scripture clearly teaches that to whom much is given, much will be required, and I think that's going to pinch a lot of Americans pretty hard. And for a long list of reasons we won't go into now, the United States, I believe, is overdue for judgment. And Thomas Jefferson summarized that, too. "Is that it made him, it disturbed him to realize that God is just in terms of what implications are for this country. And uh, we've talked before about how the rise and fall of nations can be plotted against the way nations treat Israel. But again, since uh, we've got a full plate, let's just keep moving. The last, the fifth of these five major themes in this book is, and it's the key theme, in effect, the climactic theme, if you will, and that's it's a, about a holy savior, Book of Leviticus is about a holy Savior. It lays down the requirements that He fulfilled for us. Every detail in the Bible, cover to cover, points towards Jesus Christ. That's my challenge. Until you find that connection, you've got more study to do about anything you happen to pick up in the Scripture. Hebrews 10.1 says, "For the law having a shadow of good things to come, the law is predictive." And Jesus said, For lo, I come, the volume of the book is written of me. That's in Psalm 47. It's also clo- uh, quoted in, in uh, Hebrews 10. And Jesus emphasized that on the Emmaus Road. His first ministerial act after His resurrection was to conduct a seven-mile Bible study. And, and, and verse, In Luke 24, in, in verse 27 of Luke 24, it says, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. Starting at Moses and all the prophets. Who wrote the books of Moses? Jesus tells us. All these guys writing theses in their seminaries, you can just make a nice bonfire with that stuff. Jesus told us who, who wrote the, the, the Torah. And that's that, that was that afternoon. That evening in the upper room where they're all gathered, including the two that went to Emmaus, they came back and told the guys, wow, you should have seen what happened. Guess who, who we had to dinner Anyway, they're up there, he said, and Jesus appears to them, and He says, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Boy, the Psalms are full of prophecy. And, of course, none of these are more fundamental. None of the allusions to Jesus Christ are more fundamental than those that deal with His substitutionary performance on a cross, erected in Judea 2,000 years ago, on our behalf. See, no amount of good works, of course, or religious efforts can make a sinner holy. Only the blood of Jesus. Christ alone can cleanse us from our sins. 1 John 7. 7. Only a risen, glorified Savior can intercede for us at the throne of God as our advocate and our high priest. It's the only high priest that makes a difference. Fortunately, we've got one right there at the throne. See, just as the nation Israel had to understand what was unclean and defiling... We have to also. And what we're going to discover there's all kinds of things that can defile us that we haven't ever thought about. First Corinthians 7.1 says, we must cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's what this book's going to call us to, to take holiness seriously, to understand it, to realize, our, number one, our shortcomings, and repair those through Christ. Now, what's the occasion of the book? You know, the book begins with a vav connective. That's usually translated and. In other words, it's a connective to the previous book. The previous book is the book of Exodus. In Genesis, we saw man ruined. In Exodus, we see man redeemed. In Leviticus, we see man worshiping God. You can call it the book of sanctification if you like. The kingdom of God was rejected by humanity at the Tower of Babel and uh, the world power at that time. That the the paganness continued on the earth until a few, loyal to to, to the line of Abram and his seed, uh, at last, according to the promise, were formally and finally visited at Mount Sinai, with a lot of history in there, of course. And uh, the fundamental law of the kingdom was contained in the Ten Commandments and certain applications of of them. And it was solemnly covenanted by Israel with the sprinkling of blood there, in Exodus 24. Once they did that, then Jehovah. I'll call him the unpronounceable name we don't know how it, people call it Jehovah or Yahweh whatever um, he gave them specifications for a, a portable sanctuary when Charles Heston came down from Mark Sinai he should have had the two tables of stone in one arm he should have had a, gro- a roll of blueprints in the other because he, he also brought down not just in commandments he brought down specifications for this portable sanctuary tent of meeting or the tabernacle the Shik- when that was finally built uh, the Shaganic cloud covered it and manifesting God's presence among His people. Now with God present, presence, people that imposed on them all kinds of special requirements for holiness. About ten weeks after their deliverance from Egypt, they arrived at Mount Sinai and Moses erected the tabernacle on the first day of the first month of the second year of liberation. And we put this all together, to make a long story short, um, the book of Leviticus covers about one month in, in the second year. Now, it's interesting to contrast Leviticus from the book that just preceded, because theoretically we've started this study having just come from the book of Exodus. In Exodus, we have an offer of pardon, and Leviticus offers purity. Exodus, we have God's approach to man. In Leviticus, it describes man's response to God. In Exodus, Christ is the Savior. In Leviticus, Christ is the Sanctifier. In Exodus, man's uh, guilt is prominent. In Leviticus, man's defilement is prominent. In Exodus, God speaks out of Mount Sinai. and Leviticus. He speaks out of the tabernacle. He's speaking out from among them. In Exodus, man is made nigh unto God, and Leviticus, man is kept nigh unto God. So that's our warm-up. Let's jump into Leviticus chapter 1. I think we'll get through a, a, a one verse tonight. Give it a try. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, and on it goes. It opens up with the Hebrew word vayachara, which means, and he called. That's really way, that's, the, that's what it's called. In the Hebrew Bible, that's what, it's the book of the called. Well, what is the church? What does the word Ecclesia mean? The called ones. This book has a title that should fit us. We're the called. Now, literally, denotatively, of course, it refers to Israel being the called. Now the title we use comes from the Greek translation. When the the Hebrew Bibles were translated into Greek, the so-called Septuagint version, the word Leviticus was uh, uh, derived to uh, deal with the institutions committed to the priests who were of the tribe of Levi. And the Talmud also, for similar reasons, calls it the law of the priests. But you see, the real issue to me, I think it's interesting when I discovered that, realized, boy, that hits us right between the eyes because we are the church, we're the ecclesia, we're the called out ones. And this is the book for those that are called out. Those, this is a book for the saved. If you're not saved, you got to do something before we go for, before we go on. We'll go on, but I mean, you need to deal with this. This book presumes you're saved. This book is for God's people. This book is not for those that would like to be God's people but aren't. First, how do you become one of God's people? By receiving Jesus Christ. You need to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to operate on the presumption you've all done that. I'm going to in, in, uh, adjure you by the living God to deal with that and. Uh, if you're here tonight, deal with it before you leave. If you're hearing this on tape, deal with it right now. And uh, I encourage you right now to to kneel by your chair or wherever you are, wherever you can uh, comfortably do it, without causing a traffic accident or whatever, and acknowledge to God you need Him, that you are short of His requirements, that no matter how hard you try, you know you can't make what He needs. And just uh, to put yourself... In total trust of the blood of Christ to, to, to uh, avail for you and to to put yourself in God's hands, in Christ's hands, uh, and to receive Christ, and He'll take it from there. You don't clean your act up to go before God. He's going to do that for you. He'll t- help you step by step to do what needs to be done. But but uh, He's got to do it. If you try to do it yourself, you're you're going to misunderstand the whole story. So. Uh, this book is written for those that are saved it's interesting that god is the direct speaker on every page many all through the bible we have the lord speaks through a prophet or this or that and so forth god is the direct speaker on almost every page the lord spoke unto moses directly this is asserted 56 times in the 27 chapters and the book is made almost is made up in almost entirely by the very words of the lord more so than any other book of the bible now, the rabbis of Israel have an interesting perception. They, they believe, obviously, that God created the universe. But they also believe that the template, the instructions to do that, are all hidden in the Torah. That the Torah is not only true in God's Word, is the very Word by which He created the heaven. Now, that may be one of these colorful rabbinical exaggerations. Then again, uh, from my background in cryptography and the rest, after doing our book, Cosmic Codes, I have to tell you that I wouldn't be surprised at the time when you discover that they're absolutely right. It wouldn't surprise me also to discover that the Bible is the book of life, that those of us that are saved are anticipated in they're encrypted somewhere. Don't bother looking for it, but there's a much easier way to find out whether you're in there or not. That's, what, that's your, your response to Jesus Christ. If you're responding to Him, then that's by, his, his, by the Holy Spirit's initiative. Now, um, Moses was the author of the book. There are many scholastic books trying to challenge that, but that's utter nonsense. About a third of the Old Testament was written by this incredible man, and he was and still remains the great lawgiver and historian of the world most of the history of the world is recorded by this guy Moses now we're not going to trouble ourselves in this uh, uh, study to uh, explore the various theories and conjectures of so-called higher criticism that's higher criticism what we call an oxymoron okay and uh, the, uh, uh, the, I, I started to say it's an oxymoron of the liberal seminaries I, I'll probably have to say it's an oxymoron of all the seminaries I don't know if there are, I think most of them are liberal these days unfortunately there are those that quibble about some redactory or editorial uh, alterations during the days of Ezra and we'll take up some of those as we go it may very well be that there was some editing of it in Ezra, it doesn't matter because Jesus has sanctified that which we have and we're simply going to take, we're going to take the most authoritative authentication possible to just dismiss all those other things, we're going to take the authentication that's available through Jesus Christ Himself. He's spoken on this very matter. As of the Torah itself, He called it the Law of Moses in Luke 24. He declared it to be such that till heaven and earth pass away, not one yacht or one tittle shall pass from the Law till all be fulfilled. Now a yacht or a tittle are, as I've often said, a yacht, if you saw it on a piece of paper, it looks like an apostrophe. A tittle is a little decorative hook on some of the letters. When he, when he makes a statement like that, if we were going to trans, uh, translate it into English, he would the crossing of a T or the dotting of an eye. And when he expresses himself that way, he goes as far as you can conceptually go to point out he's taking it very seriously, very literally. Now, his remarks about the law of Moses, would that exclude the book of Leviticus? Hardly. It's the core. There are some other laws in Exodus and Numbers, but Leviticus, of course, is the core document. Was it a forgery? with 56 affirmations within it of a Mosaic origin. Jesus said if they had believed Moses, they would have also believed him in John 5. Was he including Leviticus as a forgery? And more specifically, when Jesus healed the lepers, remember in Matthew 8, he sent them to the priests on the ground that Moses had commanded this in such cases. This command is only found in Leviticus 14. So he's authenticating it by his instruction in justifying his disciples for plucking the ears of corn on the Sabbath day. That was in Matthew 12. Um, He alludes to the example of David, who ate the showbread when he was at flight from Saul. You may recall it. Which was not lawful for him to eat, but only the priests. That's a law found only in Leviticus 24. And this citation is only pertinent on the ground of the prohibition of the showbread, that the same inspired authority as the obligation of the Sabbath itself. He's tying that all together. Jesus refers to Moses as having renewed the ordinance of circumcision. He does that in John 7, having been first given to Abraham. But this renewal is recorded only in Leviticus 12. 12.3. 12, the Lord himself rests the obligation of certain duties upon the fact of this law of Leviticus was a revelation from God to Moses for the children of Israel. Jesus declared that Moses wrote of him in John 5. And he highlighted on the Emmaus Road that he, uh, all the things concerning himself. So the defense rests on the testimony of the creator of the universe, the Messiah himself. Leviticus is quoted over a hundred times in the New Testament. First Corinthians 10, Paul tells us, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. First Corinthians ten six, Now all these things are our examples. He hammers it all through that uh, chapter. The one that I like is Romans 15.4. Boy, does this hit it right on. Paul says to his definitive statement of Christian doctrine called the book of Romans, chapter 15, he says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime. Not most things, not some things. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we, through the patient comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. And he's not talking just to Jews. He's talking to the Romans. To Timothy, letter Timothy, Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So this is for us, strange as it may seem. It's going to, so much of this is going to sound so strange to our ears until we put it in the light of Christ. You now, there are a lot of other places you go, 1, 1 Peter 1 and Hebrews 11, whatever, but it's a book of worship. It's got sacrifice, ceremony, ritual, liturgy, instructions, washings, convocations, holy days observances, conditions, warnings they can make up the book but worship today is no longer by ritual or confined to a specific place in John 4 we deal with that God is a spirit, we worship in spirit and truth but that doesn't mean that that worship need not reflect what we're going to learn about God's specific requirements for worship in the book of Leviticus the laws of Leviticus constantly held before Israelite the, the, before the Israelites the absolute holiness of God as the only standard of perfection and the three emphases the awfulness of sin That's blood is mentioned 88 times without the shedding of blood there's no remission boy does that give a Jew a problem today no blood's been sacrificed since AD 70 when the temple and that all was gone what do they do their entire history is focused on without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins and because the provision had been made, the provisions that, that was all anticipatory had been accomplished. So the first key point is the awfulness of sin. The second is the graciousness of God. This book is not about penalties. This book is about God's incredible graciousness. He's found a way to solve his predicament, how he can forgive us without impugning his righteousness and holiness. See, with equal clearness to all these specifications, the book is going, Leviticus will proclaim that with the shedding of blood there can be remission of sins. That coin has two sides. Without the shedding of blood there is no remission. With the shedding of blood there is remission. Not the blood of the goats, that's anticipatory in figure. We're talking about the Messiah Himself. So He provided, God in His grace provided us the remedies for our inevitable failures and our need for restoration. And of course that all focuses then on the third issue and that's the sacrifice of Christ. And again, or I like the way J.A. Syce says this, apart from any relation to the New Testament, the prescriptions given in Leviticus dwindled down to a burdensome round of uninviting and meaningless ceremonies, seemingly unworthy of so high an origin or solemn a method of inculcation, but for its link to the New Testament. I'll put it. i put it another way. Without the New Testament, if you've studied or learned the Bible in 24-hour package, we go through the first half of those going through the Old Testament. But when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you discover that it closes with unexplained ceremonies, unachieved purposes, unappeased longings, and unfulfilled prophecies. It has unexplained ceremonies, namely the sacrificial rituals, are unexplained. Without the New Testament, they're meaningless. That's silliness, it would seem. It closes with unachieved purposes, the covenants. There's a bunch of them. With unappeased longings, all the longings of the poetical books, the whole book of Psalms, depends on the millennial age which is, you know, coming and of course unfulfilled prophecies the whole Old Testament, if that's by itself is a whole barrage of over 8,000 unfulfilled prophecies see the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed you've heard me say that so often I finally found where it came from it came from Augustine I realized that for a guy that was an allegorist that's a surprising insight but in any case, yeah. Well, what's the relevance of this today? The relevance is that it is a revelation of the character of God, and God has not changed. We're not subject to the rituals as such, but we'll learn about His character from understanding them. We'll also have a revelation of the fundamental conditions of true religion. You see, the spiritual truths still abide. There is is for sinful man no citizenship in the kingdom of God apart from a high priest and mediator, with a propitiatory sacrifice for sin, those are the basics. Beyond the self-offering of a worshipper of God stands the constant t- testimony that it is only through the shedding of blood, not his own, that man can have remission of sin. See, even shedding your own blood isn't enough for your sin, and that that it's not the magnitude of your sins the issue; it's the magnitude of God that's the issue. Your most trivial sin is being done against an in conceivably holy God that's the problem so there has to be shedding of blood but not your own and we can't appreciate the sacrifice in Christ until we discover and understand and appreciate the requirements that had to be met and that leads to the sacrifices and what we're going to be doing is getting into those in our next sessions the word atonement comes up 45 times in this book the word atonement means to cover up People get cute and they say, well, it means at-one-ment. Well, it really, it, it, do, it could be used that way in, in a sermon's context, I guess, but it means to really cover the sins. They're covered until they're dealt with on the cross. One of the key verses in Leviticus, in Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Now the blood here is covering it up until Christ's blood is shed. It's anticipatory. And you 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 uh, you make that uh, commitment if you're a Jew making that uh, that uh, that offering as a way of putting faith in the in the blood that's going to be uh, uh, shed. The the uh, these sacrifices that we're going to study are codified here in Leviticus. But they were instituted in the garden of Eden and you won't understand Several things that go on there unless you really have read Genesis after having read the rest of the Bible. There's some very subtle hints. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they were hiding. They, had, they realized that they were uncovered, so they made themselves some aprons of fig leaves. And there's a very interesting verse in Genesis 3, verse 21. little one-liner. God took those away and gave them coats of skins. When we read that first time through Genesis, we sort of figure, well, sure, okay, that's more durable and more serviceable than the, you know, it's a more uh, suitable form of clothing. We think we we get blinded by the pragmatics of the situation. No, I believe that there's something else hidden in that verse that you'll understand when you come back to that after having studied Leviticus. No, God was teaching them about the shedding of innocent blood. They'd be covered. Some innocent animals had to die. They weren't using for food yet. That comes after Noah. Innocent animals had to die to cover them. There's an there's a, there's a object lesson there. And you won't understand chapter 4, unless you understand that, because here's Cain and Abel. And Cain's all, Cain ends up murdering his younger brother because his offering was accepted and Cain's was not. Cain's would see that he happened to be a farmer and the other one happened to be a shepherd. That's not the issue. We get blinded by the fact that happened to be the profession. That's not the issue. Abel was offering the offering that had been instituted, which was a sacrificial lamb. And it was accepted. Because it's an offering of faith, because that blood of that lamb pointed to the Lamb of God. When, When John the Baptist introduces Christ publicly for the first time, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's an echo of the Passover lamb, but even more so it's an echo of the lamb in Eden. Cain offered the fruits of his labor from a cursed ground. It could have been wonderful, but it's not what God specified. God means what he says and says what he means. And as as Cain felt the envy that his younger brother's offering was accepted, he murdered his brother. And we all know the rest of the story. But you may not get the dynamics there unless you get the subtlety of what those, those offerings are all about. And by the way, another part that isn't obvious, how did Cain and Abel know their offerings were accepted or not? There wasn't a priest that we know of. Fire from heaven came down and consumed the offering. There's a couple. There's two places where that's indicated. We don't. We, don't, we have a very naive perception of, of the environment they were lived in. We don't even know if it was limited. Well, it's another issue. But um, anyway, uh, the shedding of blood is the issue. Yet the shedding of animal blood couldn't change a person's heart or take away sins. But God did say that their sins were forgiven because they were forgiven in anticipation of the the, the, the cross the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And Hebrews 10, 5 through 14, hammers that home. Now, like people in churches today, uh, Jewish worships, worshipers could, in the Levitical days and following, merely go through the motions at the altar without putting their heart into it. And that uh, that meant, of course, that God hadn't truly forgiven them because that's an issue of the heart. And that's true of the day. Many people are very diligent going to church, but their heart's not really in it. They do it as a matter of rote, of uh, procedure. God does not want our sacrifices. He wants our obedience in our heart. That's what He's after. There were six basic offerings that we're going to explore in the next couple of chapters that could be brought to the tabernacle. Actually, you can make a list. There's actually, believe it or not, you go to Encyclopedia Judaica, and so you'll find about 17 different kinds of offerings. But you will also discover many of those are derivatives of a basic group of six. Some even say five, and I'll explain that when we get to them. But... Um, there are, they can be, these six offerings can be classified in three categories. The first category deals with your commitment to God. The burnt offering, the grain or uh, meal offering. There's a vocabulary problem. The King James, they speak of the meat offering. And it's confusing because you and I, today, the word meat means meat. <laughs> but it really was meal. The word had a broader connotation back in the Old English. So we might better call it the grain or meal offering. It often accompanied the burnt offering. And the drink offering from Numbers 15. The drink offering happens to be one of those out of numbers. The burnt offering, grain offering, and drink offering, these three met the uh, specific needs in life about the worshiper and expressed some truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's perfect sacrifice. We'll deal with that as we get there. But they deal with our commitment to God, our demonstration of our commitment to God. There's another offering called the fellowship offering, or sometimes called the peace offering. That dealt with our communion with God. And then there's a couple that really deal with our cleansing from God, the sin offering and the trespass offering or the guilt offering. These labels are not convenient until we really get into them a little bit. But these offerings will be detailed in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. And I encourage you between now and our next meeting to read the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Uh, It'll probably take us a couple of times to get through them, not more than once, but I encourage you just to literally read them through. To give you a a preview of what's following that, uh, the consecration of the priests will be detailed in chapters 8, 9, and 10. We'll take those as a group. Uh, They'll reveal how shallow and inadequate our thinking is on Christian consecration. Then we're going to talk about diets. Everybody's interested in diets. Well, God provided a diet for His people in chapter 11. That's both hygienic and therapeutic, but more importantly, has some spiritual food in it for ourselves. In chapter 12, we're going to talk about God's attitudes towards motherhood and womanhood in general, and they'll be profiled there. Then we're going to get to chapters 13 through 15, and we're not going to uh, 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 shortchange those. It's all about leprosy. That's not a problem today, and yet it's our biggest problem today because it's treated as a type of sin. You need to understand that to really understand what's all going on there. Because they had other diseases. Why does leprosy get these three, you know, these 13, 14, these three chapters? The cleansing of the leper finds its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Christ as typified by the, the, uh, the unusual sacrifice of the two birds. It's a very, very interesting um, uh, glimpse we get there and we need to know a great deal if we're going to escape the defilement of the world we need to really understand the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how to apply it to our lives and then chapter 16 we'll deal with a specific feast the day of atonement we're going to deal with all the feasts when we get to chapter 23 but there's a specific one, the Yom Kippur uh, that we will deal with in chapter 16 because it's a complete portrait of the sacrifice of Christ chapter 17 will deal with the role of the brazen altar and it will highlight the essential characteristics of the cross. And the chapters 18 through 22 details a lot of minute details of the daily lives, how the human family are to be involved with him. God wants to be involved in your business, in your family life and in your social life. And we need to be very, very cautious that we don't shut him out of our lives. There's one chapter we're going to set aside and do a, spend an evening on. that will be chapter 23. The ancient rabbis say that the Jews' catechism is a calendar. And uh, the feasts that are detailed there in chapter 23 lay out God's prophetic program through all all of time. Yes, they're commemorative. They're all built on certain historical incidents. On the other hand, they're also prophetic. And there's tremendous, fascinating insights we'll get from chapter 23. Chapter 24 through 27 will be an interpretation of the promised land its checkered history, and an insight into its prominence in God's future program. It's going to be surprising to discover Leviticus is actually a book of prophecy. It's going to be very timely because of all the international meddling and all the controversies of Israel's right to the land, which dominates global politics today. It's going to have a different perspective when we get through to the, this book. Uh, just a quick word about hermeneutics. What's, what's our interpretive approach here? Because... But the book, the book of Hebrews is our, our primary commentary. I've availed myself of a substantial library in commentaries, but I can tell you candidly, the core of all of this is the book of Hebrews. We, it, it, that, that, that interprets the book of Leviticus more eloquently and more authoritatively than any of the others. The examples of types here are a model for guidance of the case. You can't make just types out of the air. You want to be very cautious of that, but where types are there are authenticated as they are in uh, Hebrews, uh, it's uh, It's very useful analogies allegories and types prove nothing but they do declare and open up our understanding to the text like nothing else uh, does and uh, the uh, the typical character of the ordinances are affirmed that the tabernacle was an example and shadow of heavenly things in hebrews 8 and the sacrifices prefigured better sacrifice than these even the one offering him who put away sin by the sacrifice of himself hebrews says in hebrews 9 and the holy times and seasons are declared a shadow of things to come by Paul in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. You see, but there's more coming. See, we all talk about Yom Kippur and the cross. Let me ask you some questions. Um, we've seen the type of the Day of Atonement fulfilled when you know, entering the, heaven, when the heavens were entered by a high priest. But in the type, he came out again after that to bless the people. Has he done that yet? Mm-mm. That hasn't been fulfilled. Has he yet proclaimed absolution of sin to guilty Israel? Not yet, but he will in the time of Israel. How about the Feast of Trumpets and that of the ingathering of the harvest? Have they been fulfilled yet? No, they haven't been. What about that consummate uh, type of all, the year of Jubilee? We talk about it, we read about it, and yet how does that lay out in terms of a a predictable prophetic period? Leviticus looks forward to the most incredible future yet to come where all the requirements of the holiness will be met so fasten your seatbelts it's going to be a very exciting and highly privileged excursion God willing the Holy Spirit being with us let's stand for a closing word of prayer For next session, I'm going to expect there to be a quiz, a written quiz on, uh, no, I'm kidding, on uh, Leviticus' uh, first seven chapters. Let's bar our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you that you have provided such an elegant solution to the predicament that we share, the fact that we're sinners and that nothing we can do can make us eligible for the destiny that is on your heart for all of us. And we, we just thank you, Father, you've gone to such extremes to make us, to broaden eligibility and that that eligibility is available to us for the asking. And yet, Father, as we even begin to understand your heart and your desires on our part, we do pray that through your Holy Spirit you will illuminate these texts, that we might understand how to what they really mean and how to really apply them in our personal lives, which, of course, is so distant from those ancient rituals on the one hand, and yet still is intended to be in compliance to your requirements that our lives might be pleasing in Your sight, that our lives might be a blessing to You, Father. Not by power nor by might, but by Your Spirit, Father. So we just seek that Spirit. You promised, Father, if any of us lack wisdom, that You would give it liberally. We do ask for that wisdom and that discernment, Father, that as we plunge into Your Word, that it might be illuminated to our growth and understanding, that we might be more fruitful stewards of these incredible gifts as we commit ourselves once again into dear hands, in the name of Yeshua, pleading his shed blood on our behalf. Amen.